system, the old archaic system of oppression, of oppression and oppression and agreement to oppression at one level or another, at one level for another is actually being dismantled, is actually being dismantled in the coming 20 years. In the coming 20 years, now 20 years is a prediction. Now 20 years is a prediction, but it's also a metaphor, but it's also a metaphor for a period of time, for a period of time for a new idea to take form, for a new idea to take form and then be enacted and then be enacted. There's not a magic wand here. There is not a magic wand here, but there is a mass awakening. But there is a mass awakening to the tragedy of war, to the tragedy of war and the needlessness of suffering when it is decided and enforced by others and enforced by others. You will see in time, you will see in time how things play out, how things play out in ways you might not have imagined. But our recommendation for all of you now is that you sing peace, is that you sing peace, become as peace, become as peace. You sing, let the tone you sing, let the vibration you sing, let the vibration you sing contribute to peace, contribute to peace and demand peace, and demand peace where it is lacking, where it is lacking through the oldness, through the willingness to be party to peace, to be party to peace, period. What is up, family? Welcome back on the Just Happen podcast. I'm your host, Emilio Ortiz, and today we have on one of my personal favorite channelers and all-around human beings of all time, Paul Selig. And I normally don't get on the camera like this uh, before an interview, but I really wanted to make a brief introduction because just as I was going to edit this video and hearing it for the second time, I had full body chills pretty much throughout the whole um, editing session and also while we were recording live because I believe this is one of the most powerful um, channelings that I've seen Paul do and I've watched a lot of his content and I say that with the utmost humility, presence, respect for all the other um, interviews that Paul has done, but this one hit so deep in a variety of ways. We touched on subjects from transfiguration of matter, how to manifest the world into the upper room, as Paul Selig and his guides call it, as we're ascending in consciousness as a species. We also talked about the energies of war, violence, and how as a collective we're transcending all of that. We also got into the next generations and how they're coming in wired differently and they're going to become the leaders of this new earth. So, you know, you can already tell like it was a potent conversation and I'm really glad that we had to... Um, the opportunity to make it happen and share this with you. So if you're not already subscribed to this channel, we are bringing on some of the world-renowned leaders of the new consciousness. And you're going to want to stay tuned um, to this conversation and all the other ones that we're building together. So I'm sending you all so much love and enjoy this conversation with my friend, Paul Selig. Namaste to you. The divine in me sees the divine in you, brother. Thanks for having me. And to start off, I just wanted to ask you, what are you most, we could say excited 
or what is lighting you up the most right now in your life? What is lighting me up the most right now? I don't know. Um, truthfully, I'm, I'm in a funny period. I just lost a parent and I just inherited her dog. So right now I'm, I'm experiencing sort of change, which happens when you get older and happens when people leave and I'm integrating that. So what's lighting me up right now is what it means to be. I think I'm thinking a lot more lately about mortality and what it means to be in a body and what it means to have an experience of time and people coming and going. So, so that's really where I'm at right now. It's not that I'm not in a very lofty place. I'm not in a very low place either. I'm in sort of a, a somewhat poignant place of stillness. And what lights me up, I suppose, is the possibilities that I think are inherent now, even during times that are extraordinarily challenging. Yeah. And knowing that from you, and, and I just appreciate you for being so open about that, the mm -hmm. loss that you've gone through, mm -hmm. the guides are bringing in some new, <laughs> very new things right now mm -hmm. um, in their teachings. And one thing that is coming through, even from the latest book, the Book of Innocence, was they talk about this concept of memory and history. And moving, you just mentioned that you're looking into the future and seeing what's possible. But they did mention that it's really hard to keep one eye on history yeah. and one eye on possibility. So how do you integrate that teaching now that you're literally experiencing it in your life? I don't know, truthfully. I, I just know where I'm at. I mean, for me, the teachings that come through me, I'm, I'm a radio I'm not the teacher, you know, I'm a student of the work as best I can be. I'm more in the present moment now than I've ever been in my entire life, and I'm aware of that. And I'm also at this moment seeing very clearly how my present has been informed by my awareness of history or what I thought happened or what I thought was. And that's really what history is, you know, what we think it is. History is an idea more than anything else. The present moment is the only real time we have and we understand our history, I'm told, through a lens which is faulty. You know, they say every memory we have, um, individually and collectively, has been born through a, a misappropriated lens of separation. That if there is a God at someplace else or we are not the same at a fundamental level, and so when you accrue all that information, it becomes your life or your collective history, and you make all of your choices based on that, that's really all you've known. And what the guides are, are teaching now is about moving beyond that kind of lens that reinforces separation, because it says, they say that the personality self only knows itself through history, only understands itself through that data of what they think happened. And the purpose of that ultimately ends up being that we keep reappropriating the same stuff and recreating the same stuff again and again and again, because it's all we think we're allowed or can be. So I'm in an interesting period right now of really almost like watching a sink drain, you know, and then seeing the ring the residue of that water and then going, okay, well, that's what that was. 
And who am I now if that's not who I am, if I'm not floating in that, you know, sinkful or puddle of somewhat dirty water? And the guides have said many times that, you know, we, we, we incarnate and we have this experience in what they call the common field, which is a common reality that has been informed by fear or infused by fear. And we don't know it because we're just so used to it. We expect it to be there. And so when I use the metaphor of the ring around the sink, I'm meaning, well, I guess maybe I'm seeing what's been there and what's been informing things, but I'm not floating in it anymore. Not in the way that I think perhaps I used to. That makes sense. Yeah. And you said you were in this space of, of stillness and, and being as present and as you can be. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that because that relates so much to how we perceive time. And even that is going from our, you know, our history to what's in the future. The guys have mentioned we are operating in multiple realities and almost in this sort of simultaneous now moment. So does the way that we perceive time shift when we're entering this upper room that you talk about? Well, I'd have to channel to give you that. You know, I, Paul, am not the teacher. You know, I can try to interpret the guide's work and I do my best with it. But they're the ones who come through with this stuff, which is frankly a little bit beyond my capacity <laughs> as Paul. You know, I'm... Yeah. I close my eyes. I take dictation. The dictation is the book. There's no editing. And that's, you know, there's 12 of them now. They finished the 12th um, in the last few months. So is the experience of time change? Yes. I hear yes. And my assumption about this, and I'm probably going to get this wrong because I don't know that I'm going to channel right now, but if it happens, it will. My assumption is that, you know, time, which is... They say a construct that we're all abiding by. You know, we all know what month it is, wherever we happen to be or what time it is. I'm in a different time zone than you. My reality right now is it's 8.47 a.m. Yours is it's something very different. I'm in the future. Yeah, you're in the future. So I think what changes is that I don't know that we're bound by time in the way that we thought we were. I'm actually kind of getting younger. People keep telling me I'm getting younger, and I think I feel like it. And I don't mean that my body is getting younger. My experience is very, very different than it used to be of how I move in the world, how I walk around here. Let me go to the guides and see what they want to say. Does time change in the upper room? Of course it does. They're saying, of course it does. The upper room is without time. The upper room is without time. It is timelessness. It is timelessness. It's a level of consciousness. It's a level of consciousness that does not abide by linearity. But you may abide in the upper room. But you may abide in the upper room while maintaining form, while maintaining form. And as long as you're maintaining form, and as long as you're maintaining form, there is a linear experience. So there is a linear experience because the body is conducive. Because the body is conducive to varying experiences to varying experiences that address linearity, that address linearity. You will grow into a young man or woman. You will grow into a young man or woman. As you grow, as you grow, the body will change. The body will change. And the body's time on this plane, and the body's time on this plane is more limited, is more limited than you even know, than you even know. But your experience of self, but your experience of self in the upper room, in the upper room, beyond the idea of time, beyond the idea of time allows you access allows you access to many things, to many things that you would not experience, that you would not experience if you were staying more, if you were staying more to the lower field, to the lower field. And that's what they mm. say. 
Yeah. We had the opportunity to meet each other in person just a couple of weeks ago. And when I saw you walk into the studio, because we were recording for a new series, we'll talk about that at another point. But I literally saw you radiating as you walked in. And I was like, oh, like Paul is here. And it wasn't Paul's, you know, the personality self. It was it was the the higher self. It was the, you know, the monad that you that the guides call. They mentioned that you know, maintaining form keeps us in this linearity for beings that decide, is this like a choice that a collective species has to take to leave behind their experience as form? Or do we do that individually um, at different points in our evolution? They're saying yes and no, the species decides to alter itself. The species decides to alter itself at varying stages, at varying stages, the evolution of spirit. The evolution of spirit must actually coincide, must actually coincide with the body being altered, with the body being altered because the level of vibration, because the level of vibration the body can hold, that the body can hold is actually very different, is actually very different than most of you do, than most of you are used to as you lift in vibration. As you lift in vibration, the body is altered, the body is altered, the experience of form, or the experience of form is also altered, is also altered. Now an individual, now an individual may undergo this, but then he or she, but then he or she serves as conduit, serves as conduit, doorway, doorway, or portal, or portal, so that others may have that experience because entrainment or coherence, because entrainment or co-resonance is always present, is always present. So when one of you realize you are, so when one of you realizes Realizes who you are and realize means no and realize means no you give that opportunity to others as well you give that opportunity to others as well less by doing less by doing but by being but by being period in their same period wow it wow that has to do a lot with what i was learning the other day about the morphogenic field where we're all connected with this consciousness mm -hmm. and for example when a runner decided that he would beat the four-minute mile, mm -hmm. the five-minute mile. All of a sudden, it was possible for yeah. everyone else. And yeah. you're saying that once someone walks into that portal, they're becoming way showers mm -hmm. for the rest of humanity to lift and form. Yeah. So has there been any human in this form that has already decided and we're just waiting to catch up to, to see that way? Yes and no. At varying times in history, there are those who There are those that have aligned to the highest they can hold on from to the highest they can hold while in form. Underline those words. Underline those words. While in form. While in form. The escalation of vibration now. The escalation of vibration now, which is happening at a larger level, which is happening at a larger level, makes this present, makes this present and available many, and makes this present and available to many more. Of course, but not what you think. I asked. So, what about like somebody like Jesus? I just asked. They said yes, of course but not the way you think. So I don't know if we want to unpack that today. Um, yes, but not the way you think. So what does that mean? Yes, but not the way you think when one realizes him or herself. When one realize him, realizes him or herself as what we will call the Christ, as what we will call the Christ or the monad or the monad or the divine self or the divine self, one claims a doorway, one claims a doorway, in fact becomes the doorway, in fact becomes the doorway that others may enter the kingdom through, that others may enter the kingdom through. Now what is the kingdom? Now what is the kingdom? But the realization, but the realization of the inheritance 
inherent divine, of the inherent divine that must be manifest as all things when you make the man the idol. When you make the man the idol, you confuse the teaching, you confuse the teaching. When you realize the Christ, when you realize the Christ can be made manifest in form, can be made manifest in form, a deity come as form, a deity come as form. You have a better way forward, you have a better way forward with the idea of deity. But the idea of deity as separate as separate must then be replaced, must then be replaced by the innate divinity, by the innate divinity that each of you hold, that each of you hold, that seeks expression through you, that seeks expression through you, period. And they're saying period. Hmm. When, when I was reading into some of the texts and I was learning about that essentially there is an aspect of us that already knows who it is. Mm -hmm. That aspect of us escorts us in this life in consort with the soul and in consort with the guides that we have. So I wanted people to understand that there are different areas, you know, from the soul, from the guides that we have, from the aspect of us that knows who it is that are guiding us in this lifetime because a lot of us may feel alone Mm -hmm. at some times when we're going through rough challenges when we're going through the depths we feel like we are alone in this but actually the guys are saying that you are not alone there's there's something that is escorting you so if you had any thoughts about that i mean i don't have a lot of thoughts about this um when i was about four or five years old um and it was my first experience and it was a big one I had an experience of a being hovering by my bed and I placed the age because my younger brother was in a crib and he's two years younger. So I would have been no more than five by then. He was, there was a crib in the room and I was resting, looking up and this being was hovering over the bed. And I remember seeing the fabric of a robe, which was ornate, and the whole thing was glowing, glowing gold. I don't remember the face, because I was, from my position, I was looking at the clothing, the cloth. Yeah. And we were, to, I was being talked to, I was being spoken to. And the next thing I remember was floating on the ceiling, looking down at my body and looking down at this conversation. It's the only out-of-body out of experience I've ever had, but it was really remarkable. And I told my mother about it. I told people about it. And I was like, what happened, you know? And, and I, I filed it away and it's still filed away. I don't know yet. I've never really gone, gone full inquiry into it. What was that for me? But when I go back to it, I actually think that I was being prepared at some level for what would come. And my childhood was not an easy childhood by any stretch of the imagination. And the few psychic experiences that I had as a child were all markers and they were really interesting. Like when I was nine, I saw a flight of stone steps. I walked up the stone steps. I, this was a dream and I saw a fountain. When I was 12 or 13, my family was driving through Vermont there were the stone steps. There was the fountain. I went, oh, my God, I had deja vu. It was like, this is crazy. And then when I was 30, I got a call from this college to come and teach. And I, I mean, they said, would you, would you apply? I mean, nobody knew who I was. Why are they asking me to apply? But I applied for this job. And I ended up being there for 18 years. And that's where the fountain was. You know, in the fountain, once I got there, people said, oh, yeah, this is a portal. 
This is like, you know, this is um, one of those vortexes, like it's on a convergence of ley lines. It's Indian holy ground. And I was wow. like, well, this is what I dreamt about when I was a child. And through those years, when I taught there, and this is when I was really opening up psychically and as a, and doing beginning to do the work that I do now, they were very hard years because in many ways I was leaving the idea of who I was supposed to be behind in those years. But for some reason, because I was in this odd place that I dreamt about, I kind of knew I was where I was supposed to be. And I was. And frankly, the books that have come through me would not have come through me if it were not for that time there. I know that. So I think I was being led or at least being given coordinates on varying maps that would remind me that I was okay or that things would be okay or perhaps that I wasn't alone. I think the desire for God or source or whatever, I actually think that that's implicit in all of us. I think it's God or whatever you want to call it seeks God through us. God seeks itself. And you were an atheist for oh, yeah, the early atheist, part of your life. Pretty much, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I was a New Yorker. We went to therapy, you know. <laughs> my Both of my parents had very difficult experiences with religion. My mother was one of was one of experience of molestation and my father was a german jew you know and mm. got out during the holocaust so it was uh there was no religion in the house that i grew up in um and we sort of snickered about it and it was for those other people and i'm still not religious and i still have in spite of all of the evidence that i've been given which is that there's more and that's a whole lot at this point i still question things I'm not resolute and I'm really careful not to be arrogant about this stuff because I may never fully understand it. I may never fully understand why I do what I do or how it came to be. I may not. And I can be a little suspicious of people who have all those answers because we're understanding only a fragment. I think of what's yeah. really happening at any given time. Our experience is informed by many, many more yeah. things. They say there there are 12 dimensions and we are only experiencing one, maybe two or three at a time. <laughs> I believe it, you know, I believe it. I mean, the guides talk about the common field as a dimensional reality. And then they talk about the upper room. They'll use the word dimension very infrequently, um, but yeah. you know, they just don't, I don't think they like the language. And they also say that the language of science is limited, um, but they, they rest in the language of music, which they say is not of sound and tone. So they say, you know, the upper room, which is where they say they teach from, they meet us in the upper room. The upper room they say is the highest level of alignment one can hold while maintaining form. And that is the caveat, while you still have a body, there are other levels that we can access once we're not sort of more to, to form. Yeah. But they say that the upper room is an octave in the common field. What we know of as our reality is also an octave with its high and low notes. But they say any piece of music can be transposed to be played in the upper room in the higher level. And then even beyond that, I suspect, you know, I think, like you said, we, we have access to what we have access to, but there is indeed more. And they even you mentioned that they teach through tone and vibration in the books. There are moments and passages where 
they sing through you. And obviously when you're doing this live, how does that feel when you're receiving that through song, through, through the, the claim, through the song? How does it feel? Um, I, I'm in the sound. I become as the sound. So I'm aware that the sound is coming through me, but I move into a co-resonance with the tone. I think we all do, and I think that's what the invitation is. So sometimes when they tone, and by the way, when they started doing this, I was horrified because I was, oh my God, I have to do this now on top of everything else <laughs> already. So strange. Pushing but, your comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, now I don't really care. I mean, yesterday I was channeling and they toned, but I couldn't believe, and it was a high note and it went on forever. I didn't know I had the lung capacity. And there's sometimes there are these overtones that are astonishing that come in. You go, what is this? It sounds like three voices, four voices at once. But my experience is of allowance during that. You know, the guides once said to me when I was struggling, um, maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. And this woman asked my guide some questions on my behalf. And the guide said, well, you know, Paul is the doorway. You know, Paul, Paul's, Paul's job is to hold the door open for other people. And I thought, oh, crap, that stinks. That's not what I wanted. And then I was told finally I got to walk through the doorway with everybody else. And now the guides are saying we are all becoming the doorway. We become yeah. the doorway through for others. And that the books, my job holding the door open, I think the books, I think the books were the doors. I think that's what I was doing. But becoming the doorway, I think, is is I hope, because it's what they've said, the the accumulation of, of the vibrational experience the the level of tone that we can hold and inhabit works as doorway which is entrainment or vibrational accord allowing others the same and what's interesting is that i feel that we are already in a new space because you said in a previous interview that the guides in their latest iteration of teachings are already teaching from a place as if the reader or the, the the student is already in an aspect of itself already in the upper room. They are. And if they're continuing, because the books are, I mean, the 12 books are done that create this series. The 12th book will be out next fall. But they, um, I'm sure I'm getting a little distracted. I have a a very old dog who's looking to get out. So I may have to take a quick pause at some point. No worries, of course. Do her business. so what was I saying? What was the ask me the question one more time, please? That the guys are teaching from a place that we're already an aspect yeah, of yeah, us yeah, yeah. is in the upper room. So they're beginning their lectures with you know some 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 version of when you know who you are in a realized state or you know um, in an awakened state you comprehend and they're speaking to us as if we've done the work. And I hope I've done enough of the work. I've done a lot of the work. Is there more to be done? Yeah. Am I done? No. Do I walk around saying I'm a realized being or I'm ascended? No. And when people start to do that, I get a little nervous because I suspect that people that are really there aren't announcing it. They don't need to, you know, they're being it, you know. So I do understand that they say again and again and again that there's an aspect of you and me and everyone that's already there in what they call the upper room. 
the monad or the divine self or the divine spark or the God within or the Christ itself, call it whatever you want, already exists and expresses at that level. And so what they're doing is they're bringing us to that level of vibrational accord with what is already true and is always true and is really probably more true than our idea of who we are, which, as they say, is based and moored in an idea of history born in separation. Mm. And Paul, this this seems like it's going to be an upcoming interesting year for you because for the first time, instead of being the channel of these teachings, you are going to be telling your own story. I heard of the possibility yeah. of, of creating a memoir yeah. and you were just even giving us a glimpse of the fascinating experiences that you've gone through to get to this point. Is there any story that you are going to include in that book that was a tipping point for you to expand into this state where you're able to bring through this this energy for the world to benefit from and for humanity to ascend to a new height? I don't know that there was a tipping point. I think there were many incremental moments that allowed for opening and allowed, at least on a very practical level for me, a refinement of ability, because I do think that there's a skill set that comes with this. I mean, it's almost like you're an instrument that needs to be tuned in a certain way to be able to play the notes or carry the broadcast. So I often think of myself as a radio Initially, when I started this, when I started channeling and hearing, I really felt like there was, and this is when I was maybe 32, 33, I just turned 62, so 30 years ago. I used to feel like I had a tin can up on my ear on a string, and I would pray every time I had to do a group that somebody else would talk into the other end, and I would hear. I was a mess every time. Oh my God, what if I can't hear, and people are coming, and... And I was doing a little group in my apartment then, but I was just starting to group, do groups and the energy was really through the roof. So people were showing up. I was doing a group in Connecticut and I was going, what am I, I, I don't even know if I'm going to hear anything. I was a mess. And one night before uh, I had to channel, when I was busy being a mess, I heard, do we have permission? Can we have permission to merge? And I said, okay. And there was this, now we use the word download, you know, this is yeah. because it's convenient to our understanding of technology. But it was a, a downpouring of energy that I felt through my whole being. And it lasted maybe 10, 20 minutes. In the moment you said yes to the merging. When I said yes. That happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah wow, yeah, instantly. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, maybe there was a momentary pause. But yeah, but something happened in that moment. It wasn't enormously dramatic. What was interesting was what happened after, which is since yeah. then, I've never felt like I have a tin can up to my ear and I'm hoping somebody's going to talk on the other side and that I'm going to hear it right. For me, when I channel, it's literally the equivalent of, or like I'm a radio, this is where I'm at with you right now. And this is, I'm tuned into this experience with you. And if I go to the guides, it's just when you turn the radio, just turn it like a, an iota and there's another broadcast. And if you ask me to tune in to see how your best friend is doing, I just tune the dial to him. And that's how I hear. So I'm like a, kind of like a radio or a switchboard or something. So the idea of having to go elsewhere, you know, to float away into some other reality, to attend to this, stopped. 
and it's became very, very, very available. And I've met a couple of other people who do this that have that experience. Other people need to go through a lot of preparation and maybe they're just working in a different way. I don't know that one is better than the next. I think it probably took a lot for the guys that I work with to get me efficient. Um, you know, I my abilities started when I quit drinking when I was 25 years old and taking drugs. And that was the beginning of an opening. And I was a, still a four pack a day smoker for much of my life. When I was 48 years old and I was basically coughing up along, I would channel and smoke out the window. You know, I mean, that's how bad it was. And people tolerated it because the, you know, it was interesting and the energy still was pouring through in a way that was palpable. But they said one night, we want to continue working with you are working through you, but you're going to have to stop this if we're able to, if we're going to be able to do that. And I actually did. I stopped the next day, which was a shocker, four packs a day. And I mean, it wasn't a miracle. I mean, my, the energy group that I was working with that met in my house, they all worked with me. I went to the doctor. I got a little inhaler thing. I did little practical things, but I never smoked again so far, mm. many years. But when I stopped, that's when the lecturing kicked in. Yeah. And it really kicked in. Everything changed. My whole system opened up. And I can't imagine how much narrower my little experience of my reality was. Remember, I remember when I stopped smoking, suddenly I could see the details on the architecture on buildings. I was operating the smoke screen, which was the purpose of which was to create obfuscation obstruction because I'm a shy person and I'm sensitive. I mean, I smoked, I was usually overweight. I've done everything I can to sort of maintain some kind of safety, but I'm also enormously porous as an empath, you know, as a clairsentient, that's what I do. I step into people, I can start to resemble them and, you know, I can take on their disabilities and things like that. I mean, these things happen. If I can interject for a moment, yeah. just to go off what you said, when... This really brought me back to a couple of weeks ago when we were together. We were recording an interview for, for a TV network. And right before our interview, I got really sick from my stomach. I was like, you know, we were we were in the in the green room beforehand and I was like drinking tea and I was like not feeling well. As soon as I sat down to do the interview, um, I felt that you were in a way sort of sending me energy because i was feeling it completely mm -hmm. the pain went away mm -hmm. um as you were looking at me as you were i guess maybe grounding me i'm really interested to know is is that what you were doing sort of as an empath tuning into me and maybe dissipating some of the pain or or what was going on there i was being with you that's all i was mm -hmm. doing i was being with you and i and when i was with you and when i am with you i tend to be very fully present with you you know, I'm not masking myself and I'm not judging, you know, you're, it's funny. It's, um, it's a good part of me and maybe it's the higher part of me, but I was just being there. So granted, I, we're always running energy and we're always operating, you know, as we can. So if that is and was helpful and did support you in that way, I'm very happy. It's, you're not the first person to say things like that. I mean, it happens. Yeah. Um, my training way back when, when I was studying, was in energy healing. And although I don't practice hands-on anymore at all, I don't see clients for that sometimes when I'm working, you know, with people. And, and when I'm doing workshops and when I have 
private clients and stuff, and they're all at a distance now. I that happens as well. So let me just ask what happened because now I'm curious. <laughs> Emilio said yes to a healing that was already present. He moved the energy. He moved the energy in preparation for the encounter. It was not so much nerves. It was not so much nerves as what was present. As what was present, it was asking it was, that was asking to be released, and you cleared it, and you cleared it so you could do the work you had to do, so that you could do the work that you had to do. So that was it, you know. So maybe we did it together, you know. I don't do yeah. anything, you know. It's just. How it works. You know, when I taught college, which I taught at NYU for 25 years, um, and then this other place that I referenced earlier, Goddard in Vermont, um, you know, I, I learned what love was teaching. I learned about love teaching. The kids were sweet. You know, they were 20. They were, you know, having their troubles. And my job was to hold a space for people to learn. And I got really good at that. And, you know, and, and, and I will say in a pretty selfless way, you know, and I, that's where, that was my training ground. I suspect it trained me to do the work that I do now in some ways, the part that requires holding a space. But you remind me of my college students. So there's that effect. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Always, I think the younger that we are, the less, I guess, attachments to things that we have, which is what the guys are teaching in right now is the misidentification that we have. That was a big theme in the last book. Mm -hmm. um, so I would love to get into that, especially because a lot of us may be just as we're coming up into our our youth and we're you know establishing who we are in the world, we might identify with a lot of things outside of us. Oh, I am this podcaster. Oh, I am this lawyer. I am this doctor. So how can, from what we are learning from the guides, start to realize identification in a new way and rise above that um, and not hold such a tight grip on who we think we are? Would it be all right if we took a very short pause 100%, and came back yeah. and answer this? I'm going to attend to her and myself, and I will be back, okay? I got you, so for you sure. Awesome. I will edit, of course, of course. Okay, I'll be right back. Thank awesome. you. Yeah, got you. Thank you, sir. Of course, of course. So how do we how do we get beyond who we think we are? Is that the yeah, question? Yeah, that, that faulty sense of identity, the misidentification, which was, was talked about. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you're a baker, it helps to know that you're a baker. You know, if you're in a male body, I guess, and it helps to know that you're in a male body or, you know, whatever. It doesn't, things are useful. I think the problem is, is that we overemphasize these things and we create a structure around them. So in my case, you know, I, uh, I got to lose a lot of what I thought I was or was supposed to be, you know, I, uh, and that was hard. It was really like a great big wind moving through me and carrying away pieces of myself. And ultimately that was extraordinarily liberating for me, but much of it was really attending to the attachment I had to who I thought I was supposed to be in the world. The life that I'm living now does not resemble any version of what I thought I was supposed to be in the world that I could have ever chosen, would not have anything to do with it. And maybe this will go one day too. You know, I don't walk around thinking I'm a channeler. You know, it's just something that I do, that I have a skill for and I'm willing to show up for. But I don't think of it as who I am, nor do I think of my age as what I am or 
my gender or my sexual preference or any of those things. They're just, they're, they're parts of me, but they're not who I truly am. So some of this is done, I suspect, through re-identification with the divine self. The claim that the guides make, I know who I am in truth, they say is not made by Emilio or Paul saying, here I am, I know I'm Paul or Emilio in truth. The aspect of you that is eternal, the true self, they call it, knows who it is, what it is, and how it serves. And that invocation itself starts to put something in motion. It's a reframing in some way of identity. So let me just see if the guides want to say anything about how this transition happens, because it's, it's a good question. Nice. The idea of who you are is all, this, is all that's being released. The essential you is still present. The essential you is still present as are your preferences, as are your preferences, if they are valuable, if they are valuable to your growth, a part of your learning here, and part of your learning here. The idea of who you are, the idea of who you are, this is who I should be, this is who I should be, was told to be, was told to be, believed I was or am, believed I was or am, or all transitional, or all transitional. You're not going to be birth. You are not always in the country of your birth. You are not always the age you are now. You are not always the age you are now. Nor, your, nor is your hair the same color. Nor is your hair the same color it always was. It always was, or maybe, or maybe the ideas of who you are. The ideas of who you are useful. And you learn through them. Are useful, and you learn through them. But they are in some way supplemental. But they are in some ways supplemental avenues for experience. Avenues for experience. Ways through ways in which you may learn. Ways in which you may learn when you move to the essential self. When you move to the essential self, the other things go to an order. The other things go into an order. They become in proper perspective. They become in their proper perspective. You are not really your occupation. You are not really your occupation or your insight or your insight or your gender or your gender or your desires or your desires. The true self that is you. The true self that is you seeking expression through you, seeking expression through you is what does this work, is what does this work. You're not dismantling yourself. You are not dismantling yourself. That would be wrong-minded. That would be wrong-minded. You're simply offering yourself. You're simply offering yourself in a higher level of tone, in a higher level of tone, and that which abides in the low field. And that which abides in the low field is actually remedied and lifted, is actually remedied and lifted through your encounter with the higher, through your encounter with the higher. What's interesting is that they're giving a perspective of matter, of form, that is, let's say, for example, this crystal, we know now that this is actually pure energy, it's just oscillating at a very low density, and that's why it appears as form. So when we talk about manifestation, which these latest set of books are the trilogy of manifestation, the guys are essentially teaching that matter is much more elastic and fluid than we think it is. So how does that affect our ability to create and alter our reality, knowing that matter is not as stable as it is or solid as it is? Well, they just did a five-day teaching on this in an online class called Creation. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff that they were talking about was actually new. And the book that they just completed, A World Made New, is also about this and what it means to move to another level of manifestation and form. So this goes back, If I'm going to try to, to do this myself, and then they might pipe in and correct me. Yeah. So in what they call, in what we call the common field, everything has been named by those who came before us, and we have a relationship collectively with what things mean. The guides say we're all contributing to this reality through consciousness and through our adherence to the expectations 
This is a rock. This is a bird. This is what this is. This is a war. This is a good thing. This is a bad thing. And how we all relate to these things in some ways concretizes the reality that we know. They say when you live to what they call the upper room, which is not informed by fear, and that's one of the big differences. They say the energy of fear, which is of the low vibration, doesn't align in the upper rooms. When you go to the upper room, you're not choosing from fear, nor are you creating from it, which is a really interesting concept. But they also say that everything can be lifted to the upper room, which basically means re-seen or re-known. And that isn't like you're pulling it apart and putting it back together. The guides have said about a million times now, the only real problem humanity faces is what they call the denial of the divine, which they say is the big thing, the big challenge. So when we look at anything and we damn it, that terrible thing, those terrible people, we're aligning to that thing or that event at that level of vibration. What you yeah. damn damns you back. The guides have said what you bless, when blessing isn't blessings and prayers for the, the, the whoever, it's not a platitude. To bless something, they say, is to realize the inherent presence of the divine where it has been denied. That actually lifts it. When something is lifted, it is actually altered. When you're operating at the level of tone or vibration that they say that the upper room is, they say through vibrational accord, what you encounter is lifted. Now, the singular event of this is the personal realization, but they say this is also a collective act. And part of what we're having to deal with now is looking at all the sh that we've created in fear, which is all around us, you know? And they say yeah. the action of fear is to claim more fear, but they also say nothing gets lifted until it's seen. Nothing gets re-seen until we're willing to see how we have been participatory to it because we're all party to this reality. We don't get a free pass. I'm a good person. I don't want to look at that awful thing. You know, that's basically hypocrisy. If it's in your field, you're in some kind of vibrational accord to it. So the details, and I'm just going to say this, maybe they'll take this about how matter is altered is something I don't understand yet, but I basically failed earth science, which is like really hard to <laughs> That's really hard to fail. That's like earthworms in a pot. You know, I, like, I didn't even do that. I, let alone, I was stoned for all of algebra and geometry. Forget about it. You know, I'm, I'm This isn't even that. science now. This is mysticism. It is mysticism. About. Yeah, that's what they're teaching. It's always been a mystical teaching. So let me just see about how things are altered. Well, you understand the idea. Well, you understand the idea of transfiguration, but really what is happening. But really what is happening is that the inherent property, that the inherent property, which is the divine source, which is the divine source, come as tree, come as apple, come as tree, come as apple, come as human being, come as human being, is renowned as it truly is, is renowned as it truly is without the dross, without the dross or the dense field or the dense field obstructing the divine, obstructing the divine, which seeks to be reborn, which seeks to be be reborn or resurrected or resurrected in all matter in all matter. Notice we said matter. Notice we said matter. Now the tree knows it's holy. Now the tree knows it's holy. You don't know the tree is holy. You don't know the tree is holy, but when you know you are holy, but when you know you are holy, you will lift the tree to its true stature. You will lift the tree to its true stature and have a new right to agree and have a new relationship with the tree or the battlefield 
or the battlefield or that country or that country or those people or those people to re-see anyone. To re-see anyone as of source, as of source actually reclaims them, actually reclaims them beyond the common field, beyond the common field to a level of essence and tone, to a level of essence and tone where what they are, where what they are and what simply means and what simply means manifest Manifest can be reseen, can be reseen in a higher vibrational field, in a higher vibrational field, which is of course less dense, which is of course less dense and more malleable and more malleable. When you understand the malleability of form, the clay, the clay becomes the pot, becomes the pot, the pot becomes the dust, the pot becomes the dust, the dust becomes, the dust becomes something else. You also understand. You will also understand that what you think is real, that what you think is real is only real, is only real because you have decided as such, because you have decided as such and gone, agreement and gone into an agreement and form in form with that level of tone, with that level of tone. That's super powerful because I was reflecting on our first interview and mm -hmm. one of the things that stood out to me when the guides were coming through was they said that if you are prepared for battle, you will always find a war to fight. And they just mentioned lifting these players of the battlefield to a new, <clears throat> to a new intonation. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, because when it comes to manifestation, we also talk a lot about expectation. So what we expect to happen. And in this case, if we are expecting a war, will draw a war to us. So, and this this is also applied, I just used that example here, yeah. but what does expectation have to do in all of this? Everything. When we're manifesting reality. Everything. Everything. The guides say pretty much we're always expecting what we get. We're always, we always get what we expect in one way or another. And I go, well, is that really true? And I think some of this is true at the level of the individual, and some of it is true at the level of the collective. So, um, but they say that the small self knows itself through history. And that's, that's the menu that it is choosing from always, what has been possible, yeah. what has the been past. agreed to. Exactly. So, you know, when we have some kind of real breakthrough, I suspect it's because somebody pierces the veil of possibility. And I maybe, you know, I've heard this before. I don't know if it's true, you know, like, Five people in different parts of the world all sort of come to the same wondrous conclusion around the same time because I think it's floating in the field and somebody gets yeah. it in and works with it and maybe gets the credit for it, but it's there. And so, you know, when we come, become more available to what's actually possible, which doesn't necessarily reside in our own idea of what's even plausible or what can be, I think things become possible. I don't think about what I do. I was thinking about this before this interview. You know, I don't think about what I do. I just show up and I do it. And I don't <laughs> think about it as that weird anymore. And I don't think about it as that special anymore. I really don't. It's just what I show up and do. For me, it's very ordinary to do this now. Somebody else may be looking at this and go, oh my God, this man's completely insane. Or they might go, oh my God, this is possible. When something becomes a possibility, it can be claimed. Nothing can be claimed in form until it's first claimed as a possibility. Now, if we want to claim another war, we're going to have it. You know, the guides say we have been at war for so long as a species 
since this is, since the per first person picked up the first rock and threw it, we've been at war somewhere because it reinforces the idea that we are separate from yeah. each other which is this inherent teaching that we've been learning through yeah. for the past thousands of years and some of that's based in lack there will not be enough food there is not enough land there is you know all this stuff which is based in a belief that source is not of supply or some are favored or some are not or all that crap but they say, um, because we've been at war for so long, we actually can't imagine a world without one. We expect mm. it. And so we keep getting it. And they say, until we come to a place where the idea is obsolete, it doesn't occur to you to pick up a rotary telephone and dial your friend. Mm. I grew up with those things. You know, to work on your typewriter, it doesn't occur to you, you know? These things are archaic. Let's light the kerosene lamps. I mean, unless there's a hurricane, why would you do that? So, you know, as long as we rest on these things as necessary to our reality or survival, I suspect we will do them. But they say peace comes when humanity comes to a level of consciousness where war is not an option. It's just not present in the field anymore. But they say we're going to get there, hopefully not the hard, hard, hard way. But they say that's one of the ways we may get there you know, to realize the futility yeah. of it through seeing the absolute futility of it. And they do say it's futile. Yeah. And and I also want to piggyback off that because they've said that in the kingdom, it's not that the, the, the fear is no longer present. It's that the choice of fear is still there. We just don't really see it as a choice. It's like if you go to a luxury restaurant and there's these beautiful food, like you wouldn't pick... You know this food that doesn't look that tasty because it's you have a whole different menu mm -hmm. mm. yeah i mean you know i don't is fear let me just ask this that would be a sphere of choice and everyone, of course if you want it yeah of course if you want it we have to go back downstairs like they make the crappy food in the basement so you got to go back down <laughs> yeah. to the basement where and sometimes you want crappy food you really do huh. and sometimes i'm going to say i just want to be pissed off for an hour and i can go downstairs and do it you know I know what it does to me and what it gets me, you know, which isn't all that healthy. Hmm. Fear, you know, the action of fear is to claim more fear. Fear comes in different disguises. So anyway, I'm not saying anything new here. That's yeah. all. And talking about this transition, this shift, the guys have also said that this this does not need to be an extreme collapse. You know, we, every time we go on YouTube, we see all these like thumbnails or titles that are like, collapse is coming, the end is near. They're saying that it's not really a collapse, but it's a resurrection. So what yeah. is the difference between those two? Well, I mean, the metaphor that they've used or one of the many that they've used is, you know, when a new seed seeks to sprout, it actually displaces the soil around it. When it pierces the soil, it moves things with it. And I think some of what's happening is that. I also think some of it, what's happening is when you, you know, lift up something that's been, you know, lying there in the grass and you lift it up and then you see all the creepy crawlies. You see all the creepy crawlies that were always there that you didn't want to see and you were seeking to ignore. And you can't do anything about it until it's seen. So I think some of what's happening, what they've said, and they said this in the very first book, which is called I Am the Word. 
And that was channeled in 2009. And they said humanity is at a time of reckoning and a reckoning is a facing of oneself and all of one's creations. And that's all of us. And they say everything that's been created in fear is going to need to be recreated in a higher way. Now, I don't know that there's anything inherently wrong with government or medicine or education. They're all wonderful things. Religion, they're all wonderful things potentially. But many things get informed by greed or by the desire to dominate or to hold power and control over others. And, and these are the things that are going to have to be remedied. If I understand this, let me get them and say, this is important. I want to let, let, let them see what they would like to say differently. We would like to say it differently. The times you sit in are fraud. Yes, the times you sit in are fraud. Yes, but they hold great, but they hold great opportunity, great opportunity for change. The consciousness is playing now. The consciousness that is coming into the plane now is actually not warlike, is actually not warlike. It demands peace. It demands peace in the generations that follow. And the generations that follow will be very vocal about this, will be very vocal about this. And in time, they'll be running everything. And in time, they will be running everything. Those who are being born now, those who are being born now are born with a new equation, are being born with a new equation, understanding of equality, and understanding of equality and the requirements of equality and the requirements of equality, the old archaic system, the old archaic system of oppression, of oppression and oppression and agreement to oppression at one level or another, at one level for another is actually being dismantled, is actually being dismantled in the coming 20 years, in the coming 20 years. Now, 20 years is a prediction. Now, 20 years is a prediction, but it's also a metaphor, but it's also a metaphor for for a period of time, for a period of time, for a new idea to take form, for a new idea to take form and then be enacted and then be enacted. There's not a magic wand here. There is not a magic wand here, but there is a mass awakening. But there is a mass awakening to the tragedy of war, to the tragedy of war, the needlessness of suffering, and the needlessness of suffering when it is decided, when it is decided and enforced by others and enforced by others. You will see in time. You will see in time how things play out, how things play out in ways you wouldn't imagine, in ways you might not have imagined, but our recommendation for all of you now, but our recommendation for all of you now is that you sing peace, is that you sing peace, become as peace, become as peace. Let the tone you sing, let the tone you sing, let the vibration you sing, let the vibration you sing contribute to peace, contribute to peace and demand peace and demand peace where it is lacking, where it is lacking through the wellness through the willingness to be party to peace, to be party to peace, period. They're saying period. That was probably one of the most powerful channelings I've heard from the guides because <laughs> because of the aspect that they brought in of the next generations yeah. and the newborns that are coming in. Mm -hmm. This relates me a lot to what Dolores Cannon said in her writings of the three waves, that essentially there are going to be waves of generations coming in with the sole mission of raising humanity into a new state. And I feel like this is almost the final leg of the wave that is coming in right now. And I would just like really curiously, um, this is fascinating for me is why are these newborns coming in wired differently than the previous generations? Why is that happening? Preparation, agreement, and facility, the level of 
field. The level of the field on the manifest plane on the manifest plane has already been altered, has already been altered. It makes for more buoyancy. It makes for more buoyancy, more possibility, more possibility, more love and more love. You're not seeing this yet. You are not seeing this yet. You are seeing the smoke from the fire. You are seeing the smoke from the fire, but in some ways the fire is disabling. But in some ways the fire is disabling an old structure and old structure when the smoke clears when the smoke clears and the ash is seen and the ash is seen, there will be some clarity. There will be some clarity in those who come and those who come will be able to walk amongst the ashes, will be able to walk amongst the ashes and plant the new and plant the new. Now we're not speaking of ash and construction. We're not speaking of ashes in terms of destruction as a metaphor. It is a metaphor. The ashes are the ashes of fear. The ashes are the ashes of fear and the creations of fear and the creations of fear that are being renowned, that are being renowned. Those who will come, those who will come are quite ready to come, are quite ready to come. They need no coercion. They need no coercion. They are born and awakened. They are born in an awakened awareness and an awakened awareness of the requirements of the soul, of the requirements of the soul. They're not seeking to find it. They are not seeking to find it. They know their work and they do it. They know their work and they do it. That's what I hear. I've never wow. read Candace, so I know who she is, but I don't know her work. So it's always yeah. nice to hear that the guides aren't speaking as a lone voice. Yeah, and and they said that these children are are essentially demanding peace, and they're going to yeah, be I, in leadership positions where they say, "We don't want to throw all these bombs at, at this country. We don't want to do that." And and we're getting, you know, um, right now I, I would say maybe those voices aren't heard, and they're the ones that are probably being most affected by this whole situation that's going on in the world right now. Mm-hmm. But it's really hopeful to listen to that perspective of. One day they are going to be in the positions of mm-hmm. leadership and they're going to be the ones that are dictating, are we going to do this? Are we going to move forward with this? How are we going to structure our, our systems? It's, mm-hmm. it's a new world that, that can come about when we have it, children coming in that already recognize the inherent divine within them. And I don't even know that they need to call it the inherent divine or know of it that way. If you understand, I mean, the guides say, you're born, you have the right to be, you know, if you're born, you have the right to be. It's such a simple thing, you know, to honor, you know, the sanctity of of human life. It's an easy thing, really, if you think about it. You can think of that as a spiritual thing. I guess it is, but you can also think of it as a moral thing. I suspect it is. But when it just is what it is, and you're not trying to understand it through some kind of system, I think things get so much easier. You know, I remember in my, at the end of my college teaching days, which is maybe not eight years ago now, something like that. Mm. Um, this, cause I used to teach in a little theater space on a stage and the kid would come up with his papers and present his thing. And this kid came up with this big folder of papers and they fell all over the stage. You know, as the kid was like, oh, my God, you know, 100 papers all over the page. And all of the kids in the first row didn't nobody said anything. They all just got up and they went up to the stage and they picked up the guy's stuff for him. And I went I was actually stunned. Because when I was growing up, everybody would have laughed. It would have been a big snicker fest. And I thought, boy, people are getting it. This is so lovely to see. They're just doing, they're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. Helping they're each not other. asking to be seen doing it. They're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. How beautiful is that? It's the right thing to do. Yeah. I love that. And the guys have also said that this 
process will take several generations and i wanted to quote them on this Um, they said that the kingdoms the kingdoms do not need to fall in a moment it's always generational the societies that you have built that you have given great power to are not all born in fear but there are aspects of all cultures that are steeped in the denial of the divine and these are the aspects that will be moved so it gives a lot of hope of like oh it's not like all the countries in the world are going to be erased from the map and we're going to create something new it's a lot of these these big and powerful cultures and societies were built with also a high level of consciousness there are only some aspects of it that deny the divine but others don't so it's really really cool to to know that Uh, yeah i think so too yeah there's one sort of last topic I wanted to hit with you, Paul, for this. We've covered a lot, and I know people are going to have to be sitting with this information for, for the days and the weeks to come. But when we were in our last interview, in our last conversation, you mentioned that there was a past lifetime that you remembered uh, working with one of the guides. And you when you looked him up, you saw that this guy was a scholar in a yeah. different time in humanity, and you realized that he was teaching the universality universality yeah. of all religions. Yeah. So what do you know now as to be that universality? What connects all the religions? And, and maybe the guys, if they want to step in for this, but where do you sit with that right now? I, you know, I'm not religious. You know, I, I, I'm really not. I, I read the New Testament because I, I was told to, to read John aloud, which was right before they brought through the energy of the word. And I was like, what the heck? They even told me the book to get. get I kept hearing Jerusalem Bible. Like, what is this? I went to a bookstore. What's Jerusalem Bible? It's a real translation from the Aramaic. And then I, they said, read John aloud. I did it. And then they said they brought through the energy of the word and the teachings as, a, as an attunement, which was the first attunement they brought. So what is the universality of all religions? Let me ask with the truth, the truth things the truth of all things is actually embedded in all of them is actually embedded in all of them but mostly obfuscated but mostly obfuscated or repressed or repressed through the systems that would support the religion through the systems that would support the religion the truth is present in all of them the truth is present in all of them what is the truth paul asks what is the truth paul asks god is god is god is god is god is god is the absolute is present the absolute is present and accepting you and accepting you and with you and with you and of you and of you because you're not separate because you cannot be separate from it and not not accepted and not not accepted to understand yourself as worthy to understand yourself as worthy without the intercessory without the inter intercessory intercession intercession of a priest or rabbi of a priest or rabbi or a soothsayer or a soothsayer is a very powerful place to come to is a very powerful place to come to when you know you are worthy when you know you are worthy you know all are worthy you know all are worthy we know all are worthy when you know all are worthy you don't need a church or a mosque you don't need a church or a mosque the world becomes the church and the mosque the world becomes the church and the mosque the world is holy the world is holy as are all people as are all people as are all things as are all things and all places and all places you just forgot you just forgot god is and they've also said that that's the antidote to the denial of the divine that we've been discussing and it's really interesting to see you channel now because even from the last time we we got on and and through the books as well 
you are interjecting much more within the teachings than before. Sometimes they would say, Paul is interrupting, Paul doesn't Mm -hmm. understand this, but now it's actually you asking questions while they're channeling. How has that evolved for you? That's always been there. I mean, this is when, when, when a book is being channeled, because the whole thing with the books is I don't get to go back and edit anything. It's a bit of a high wire thing, you know, like I'm on a diving board. Oh, my God, what happens if I slip and I hit my head and the, the book falls apart because I say the wrong, I hear it wrong or I say it wrong. And but there's no way there's no editing in the books. Maybe three words are fixed that I mispronounced or stumbled over or something in, in an entire manuscript now. But when I'm with this, you see, when I so when I'm channeling a lecture, when they're working through me in front of a group, I recede, I do a little prayer protection, I go back and they come forward and I'm basically giving them the wheel. And occasionally from the back seat, I will hear something that alarms me or confuses me or I don't, I want more clarification on. And then they'll say, Paul is interrupting, Hmm. you know, um, and they may frame the question as they wish it to be said, or they may just, or it may be me. When I'm with you here, there's like three of us in the car right now, or 12, nine of us, if you want to count all of who they are, whatever they are. <laughs> but it's kind of like with this, the wheel gets passed back and forth. I'm not in deep. It's more conversational. When I read for people, it's much more like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they come with a lecture, they come prepared. You know, they're, they know that they're going to speak through me for probably, you know, half an hour to 50 minutes in one sitting. Is that the max that your body can and your nervous system can take? They usually cut me off now. At about half an hour, they generally wrap it up. And I work with my eyes closed. I'm often surprised to open my eyes. It's exactly half an hour. Sometimes with a book, they'll go 40 or and the longest is about 50. It's a lot of energy to for wow. me. And sometimes, you know, when they're doing a book, and it's a five, five hour workshop, they, they'll do 80 pages of a book in a five day workshop. So if it's like seven pages a lecture, it's a lot of lectures. Um, Sometimes it's 12 pages, you know, it's a lot of work. But the energy is running through me. I'm not retaining everything that they're saying. I'm just trying to keep up with the dictation. And I just want to be accurate. You know, that's my job is to be stenography. It's really stenography, spoken stenography. Mm. I just want to be accurate and get it right. I can get it right when I'm out of the way. Here, the stakes, I mean, people are watching this, yes, but we're still having a conversation and the guides are there to answer questions. As always, when I can't or won't or choose not to, they will, they will yeah. always come in with that. When people want the guides to be the entertainment, the guides may come through and say, we are not the entertainment because <laughs> they're not. Good. That's yeah, happened before. Not. Oh, your guide say something for us now and give us some little wisdom, little tidbit of wisdom. <laughs> little wisdom. No, <laughs> not going to happen, you know, unless they want to and then they will. Um, but they, they're teachers and they come to teach. And if there's a willing student, they like to talk. That's how it shows up. Beautiful. And I would love to know what is coming up next for you and where would you send people to connect with the work? Um, I'm going to pull up the, mm-hmm. the latest book, the book of innocence, mm-hmm. beautiful book. The cover is amazing. Um, what is coming up next? Where would you send people to connect with your work even further? My website's the easiest place, which is just, you know, paulselig.com. And there's a calendar up there. 
there's a big retreat coming up on Maui in the spring um, for people that are interested in a pretty place to come to and work for a week with the guides. I work online pretty much every week, um, every Wednesday, just about I'm channeling their teaching. And um, once a month, I do a five day online intensive. So that's all up online. And um, <laughs> what else? I guess that's kind of, you know, that's it. Yeah. Um, what can we I know about the memoir? Oh, God, that is what's next. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to do this, but I wanted to do this three years ago. And so I had a contract for three books for the next trilogy. And then we added the memoir to it because I figured that's the only way I'll do it. You know, and, you know, granted, I'm being, you know, it's like next to no money for this, but I'd like a deadline. So that's what I'm supposed to do next. And I'm nervous because I haven't done my own writing in many years. And yeah. um, I don't know. I'm used to these books take two weeks of sittings, really. There's no, there's no editing. I mean, it's a month or two of my life. Look how, you look how thick this is. It's 320-something yeah. pages yeah, yeah. in but two weeks. It's whatever it was. I mean, I think that one might have been three weeks. Um, I am the word was two weeks, two, two weeks and two days, I think. But yeah. very rarely are the books more than 35 days of sessions. The, the one that they just finished was 20 something days it was quite, quite fast. And they said it would be fast and I'm glad, glad it was fast. because It was exhausting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the memoir, we'll see. I have to sit down and actually start to write. So we'll see yeah. if I have anything actually to say as Paul, you know, yeah. we'll find out. Yeah, well, I'm that. excited for that. And we end every podcast just as we did the last one with a segment called the final trio. Um, they're essentially rapid fire, but you can answer in any way that you want. The first two are personalized to the guest. And then the final one we ask at the end of every show. The first one I wanted to leave with you is what does being limitless truly mean? Being unafraid of the outcome. Mm. What is the meaning of eternity? all things at once mm. and this final one is called the time capsule question and i don't think we did we didn't do this in the first interview this is something new <laughs> but essentially this is a opportunity for you um let's say 15 20 years down the line you are given the opportunity to have a time capsule and in this time capsule the purpose of it was to leave behind a gift for the next generation of leaders. So my generation, the younger generations in 15 to 20 years are going to be stepping into leadership positions. That's why I got chills when the guys were channeling just now talking about the newborns. They're going to be in leadership positions and they're going to want some guidance. They're going to want some, some wisdom, something to help them carry out the new octave of reality. And in this time capsule, you can leave behind anything that you believe will help them. So they're going to be presented with a room filled with time capsules. And one is going to have your name on it. If you were to leave behind something for these leaders in a time capsule, it doesn't have to be physical. Mm. It can be anything, a vibration, a tone, a claim. What would it be? I mean, I just would want to say to treat everyone with respect. That's really the simplest thing. The inherent respect, they have a right to be. If we could get that much right, there would be a lot of good. 
happening in the world. I don't think we've even mastered that, you know. Um, but other than that, you know, my legacy in this life, I suspect, are going to be the students of, of my work. And that includes the writing students I had back at NYU and Goddard for all those years. I'm, you know, I, I got to be party to the future through what they create. And I think that's still true now for who's studying with the guides and who's benefiting from them. And I just hope people are benefiting from this stuff. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I can't speak for all people, but it's benefited me in ways I cannot begin to explain. Um, below your name, you can leave behind a question, a reflective question for these students, these leaders. What would also you would you would ask them? What question? Why am I still single? That would be my question. <laughs> Get selfish, right? At the end of the show. What is the question? if anyone knows anyone? There we go. Connect them to Paul right now. Reach out to me. We'll get you on some little speed dating. <laughs> Thank you for that, Emily. I appreciate it, brother. This has been such a pleasure. Um, I know, you know, times are are right now in many ways shifting for you as well. And I just wanted to honor you for bringing always your best, showing up. I love talking to you. It literally brightens my day, it brightens you know my my path, and uh, I just appreciate you so much. And I hope to continue the these this volume of conversations that we're co-creating um, and bringing more light into the world. So, with all the love and and all the respect as well, brother. Thank you. I feel the same. Thank you. Namaste. 